0: Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Uh, We're getting near the end of the year 2021, and amongst other things, some of you are considering uh, where to donate some year-end money you might have made or might have a little extra. Uh, We are a 501c3 charity in the United States, and uh, elsewhere, I hope you just give because you want to give. We don't have tax-exempt status anywhere else. Um, All that being said, we can't do this without you. Uh, your financial support, of course, is critical. Uh, uh, I still really aren't getting, not getting paid anything, uh, but I hope I will. Uh, but I have to hire a, I have a part-time editor. I've got a part-time admin assistant. I've got a part-time web administrator. Uh, It all costs real money in terms of the monthly payments for uh, various kinds of subscriptions, like translation costs us money, Uh, both the service that does the automatic transcription and uh, paying people to proofread those because, as you know, these automatic transcriptions are only about 80% effective. So we are paying uh, for that too. So if you're watching, if you're reading the transcripts, if you like what we do, Uh, I hope you will support uh, the kind of work we do. I I think it's unique, and I hope you do too. Uh, We will be back in just a few seconds with Andrew Colburn and his book, The Spoils of War. There's a document from the year 2000. It's known to many as the Project for New American Century. It was signed by Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and many other neocons that made up President Bush's cabinet and defense department. People usually focus on the fact that the document advocates regime change in Syria, Iraq, and eventually in Iran. And it's all about asserting American dominance, asserting its role as a single superpower after the demise of the Soviet Union. But one should pay attention to what the actual title of the document is. It's. Rebuilding America's Defenses, which is all about a massive increase in military spending. Of course, it should be called Rebuilding America's Offense, but the key point is about the supposed need for creating trillions of dollars to modernize the U.S. Armed Forces. This is the document that's often cited to reference the 9-11 attacks, as it out-and-out says that Americans won't support such spending or another major war without another Pearl Harbor-type attack on the United States. Of course, in 2001, they got what they wished for, perhaps what some of them planned for. According to Senator Bob Graham, who led the joint congressional 9-11 investigation, Bush-Cheney actually facilitated the attacks in collaboration with Saudi Arabia. More on that another time, but why is Bob Graham's position on this being ignored. The objective, we are told, was rebuilding America's armed forces. But rebuilding them for what? Well, to defend America's freedom, of course, and it doesn't take a lot of scrutiny to find out there's actually no threat to America's freedom, at least not externally. There might be quite a few threats internally, domestically, but what exactly is that freedom to begin with? It's certainly a lot more freedom for people of wealth than people who are not of wealth. But at any rate, there's no real external threat to America's freedom, and there never has been, at least not since the end of World War II, in spite of decades and decades of propaganda otherwise. So the classical analysis, whether it's from the left or from the libertarian right, is that the military buildup is really about securing foreign control, domination, global hegemony for the sake of markets and raw materials. Except when you actually look at post-World War II history, where exactly did this global American military might actually accomplish any of that? Maybe in Grenada, But they weren't successful in Cuba. They weren't successful in securing North Korea. They lost the Vietnam War. They lost in Afghanistan in Iraq. Yes, they overthrew Saddam, but China gets even more of Iraq soil than the United States does, and the Iraqi government is at least as friendly to Iran as they are to the United States. But while these adventures ended in military and geopolitical failure, trillions of dollars flowed into the arms industry. Perhaps U.S. military power has discouraged China from unifying Taiwan, but that's not sustainable. They haven't been able to invade Venezuela to topple Maduro, not because the U.S. has some moral objections to such intervention, but they know they would face endless resistance from the Venezuelan people and the wrath of all of Latin America. So the use of this massive global military might actually hasn't even been all that successful in terms of securing raw materials and markets and asserting its hegemony. The real power of the U.S. empire is its financial sector and the power of its markets, and yes, the CIA and its covert activities. But primarily, the United States is the manager of global capitalism, and so far, that's an indispensable role. None of what I'm saying is meant to minimize the very real control the U.S. has over most of the globe, and certainly its ability to project military power plays a role in certain situations. But that said, in spite of this massive military might, China is now the leading trading partner for almost all of Latin America, Africa, even Australia, most of Asia, and China doesn't have any global military power to speak of, and still dominates many markets and sources of raw materials. So what exactly is at least a trillion dollars a year of military spending accomplishing? What is the point of this enormous military power? Well, there's a new book out by Andrew Colburn called Spoils of War, which makes the argument quite persuasively, I think, that the primary objective of all this military spending is the spending itself. It's the money making, the profits made by the military-industrial complex, even to the extent it doesn't much matter if the weapons even work or are effective in carrying out actual military missions. Now joining us to talk about his book is Andrew Colburn. Andrew is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author of many articles and books on national security, including The New York Times, Editor's Choice, Rumsfeld, and The Threat, which destroyed the myth of Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. He's a regular opinion contributor to the Los Angeles Times, and has written for, amongst others, the New York Times, the National Geographic, London Review of Books, and many others. Andrew, thanks very much for joining me.
1: Great, Paul. Good to be with you.
0: So, am I missing something here? What the hell is the point of this obscene military budget?
1: Well, it's a very important point. I think you mentioned it in your introduction. Um, it's a trillion dollars' worth of point. points. So, uh, You know, if you dangle a trillion dollars in front of people or person or an institution, a system, they're going to grab at it. And that is the point. The point is not, very evidently, the point is not what we're told it is, which is, you know, the defense of the United States, you know, (coughs) uh, based on a very carefully considered strategy, you know, plans and so forth. The point is to make. To garner money, money and power, or the power to get more money, and that at that, this system is incredibly successful. I mean, you know, people who deride the U.S. military complex, the military-industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, I think um, really do it, do it an injustice when they say it's you know can't shoot straight, it's incompetent. Uh, no, it can shoot very straight and it hits the target very effectively um, and has done for years and years in the face of really some quite significant obstacles like the occasional outbreak of peace um, in uh, you know 1975 the, the Vietnam War ended um, and you know a very significant effort they've been putting into that you know half a million men, vast expenditures over a huge distance the war's over, you'd expect there to be a mammoth cost saving well the budget went down briefly for a year or so and then started to climb again so they you know peace was not, not a big obstacle again even more significantly in 1991 the Soviet Union collapses uh, the the enemy that it had all been based on confronting the Soviet threat that's why the you know we were up and running in the Cold War in the arms race in the, in the late 1940s suddenly that goes away what do we do <laughs> we we Things go latent for a few years, not not to a great extent. I can explain why or how, uh, but within a few short years, the budget is zooming up again, and now we spend more, more than we spent uh, during the the Cold War, on average. I mean, it's quite extraordinary and quite a testament to the human resourcefulness or the
0: resourcefulness of our defense complex. Andrew, you talked to some of the insiders, both in the military and I'm guessing in the military industrial complex. To what extent are they themselves conscious of the fact that most of the spending is for the sake of profit making and has next to nothing to do with national security?
1: Well, um, if you catch them in moments of honesty, they do. They're being really deep down, they do. Um, you get. Uh, to a certain extent, they believe their own propaganda. Um, that they, you know, their careers, their fortunes, their children's college education, or whatever, is vested in believing something. You know, believing in uh, whatever it is they happen to be pushing. You know, the wonders of precision-guided global strike. Um, you know, remote warfare, drone warfare. So they'll. You know, I was—I wondered if I could sort of inject them with truth drugs. Would they start committing it, uh, committing truth? Um, I'm not sure they would. I think they internalize it to uh, to such a degree. I mean, someone once told me he said he, until he went to work for the Air Force, uh, he'd never understood the communist system idea of the party line. You know when. Stalin would, you know, give a new instruction which contradicted what he was saying yesterday. Everyone in the global communist movement would fall into line immediately. You had to follow the party line. And then he said he went to work for the U.S. Air Force and he saw it in action. That um, you know that the sort of the groupthink and the, the sort of the discipline of you know believing in the ideology was so firmly entrenched that they would follow it. That being said. I do find usually when you catch them when they're retired uh, or mellowing into old age, they'll admit that, you know, what a crock it all is. But you'll see, for example, um, you know, recently they, you know, crept out of or hurried out of Kabul after being defeated in the Afghan war. And um, their biggest complaint is that it's been called a defeat. People people like, uh, H.R. McMaster, very considered for a long time the bright hope of the U.S. Army. Then he was Trump's national security advisor. He had a piece last week, um, basically complaining that people are saying we're defeated and how bad that is. Um, so they don't like to be called out on their failures, but uh, uh, because you know it interrupts the money flow. I mean, that's that's the demand now. Is for God for God's sake. Even though we lost that war and then one before that and the one before that, uh, we did conquer Grenada, as you said, um, they don't want the money flow
0: interrupted. So now we have the China threat to
1: justify it.
0: It's one thing to sort of buy in and rationalize somehow troops all over the world, bases, aircraft carriers, but it's all over there. And I'm pretty sure they think to themselves, my kids aren't going to go get killed over there. So that's one thing to get your head all around, but the fact that they allow such expenditure in nuclear weapons, what is it now? Maybe 2 trillion over the next 10, 20 years, rebuilding America's nuclear might. If a nuclear war breaks out, there's no over there there. Well, you know, it really comes
1: back to, yeah, to the profit-making moment, to institutional power. I can give you the need to you know maintain Positions of power and influence. I'll give you, you know, one example, very the nuclear weapons industry or effort provides a very good example of this, which is, you know, we have uh, the so-called triad. We have uh, missiles that are based on land, the ICBMs that they're, you know, about to build a new one or they are building a new one. Um, we have you know, bom- nuclear weapons on bombers. Um uh, and we have nuclear missiles on submarines now there's the only there's a long time ago um, we had the nuclear weapons on nuclear weapons on bombers because that was our strike force, and that's how we could if the Russians tried to attack us with nuclear weapons, we would strike back with bombers and then we <coughs> invented these missiles um, so they were our retaliatory force, and we had a huge air defense network to stop the Russian bombers getting through and radars to detect the Russian missiles. Then they figured out how to put missiles, fire a missile from a submerged submarine. Well, now who needs the rest of it? You know, we can deter the this is completely invulnerable. The Russians could never find these submarines, could well they could never find them, period, but even In the worst case, they could never be sure of finding them. So the Russians, or whoever, the the Chinese, anyone, would never dare launch a nuclear attack on us because we could quite certainly retaliate from our submarines and, you know, blow them all to pieces. So they had to think up new reasons to keep the ICBMs, particularly, and the bombers. Um, There was no, the original rationale had gone away completely. So they spent, you know, they put their best minds to work um, to think of, of an excuse for having the land-based missiles, and Daniel Ellsberg can tell you more about this than I could. Uh, but that was purely, uh, purely because they wanted, the Air Force wanted to keep that budget and all their attendant contractors. There was no other earthly reason, no rational if you call anything to do with nuclear weapons rational reason for maintaining this enormous and enormously expensive force in being uh, but keeping that
0: keeping the money flow that's the only reason to replace them while they're talking about essentially a whole other modernization of exactly those missiles that's right
1: and the um you know and they're having to sort of Refresh and sort of you know dust off some of the old arguments for having these useless things in the first place, um, and you know interestingly there's a there's a um, you know there's a sort of nuclear industrial com- political congressional complex. You the senators from the missile states of Montana and Wyoming. Um, you know when there's a threat to the land-based ICBM, you see those senators rising up in righteous anger. Because you know it's jobs. It's you know it's considered important to the economy of their states to um, to keep these missiles in being. And by the way, I mean to keep their population of say Montana or Wyoming at risk of nuclear immolation, because because they're there, they would obviously be targeted by an enemy, by the Russians or whoever, the Chinese. It doesn't matter. And so you know they never say to the, <coughs> to the people of Montana. By the way, we're holding you up as a, you know, we're enhancing your role as a nuclear target because we think the jobs it generates makes it worth it and the campaign contributions I get from the Lockheed or the Northrop Corporation or so forth. Um, It's never put that way, of course, but it just shows the appalling, the sort of risks and the denial, level of denial that happens when, in terms of this, the pursuit of, as I say, you know, profit, money,
0: power, and influence. I assume their defense of these missiles is that, well, the Russians still have a lot of them, and now they're saying the Chinese are building more of them. So if they have, we've got to have it. Although that's exactly the argument being used in Russia and China.
1: Well, yeah, they do say that. Um, you know, but then presumably the people in Russia and China say the same thing. Um, I should, you know, I want to stress how incredibly dangerous this is because these, because on the presumption that you have to be able to afraid to fire them more or less on instant notice, because, you know, the you know, the Russians have them targeted, and therefore, if if the radar and the satellites pick up signs of incoming Russian missiles, you know, the president has to be woken up immediately and, uh, you know, give the order to launch the land based missiles in particular because they're so vulnerable which means that everything's on hair trigger alert which means that you know a slip up and we've had near disasters in the past can you know blow us all to kingdom come because you know the you know it happened in 19, uh, 1979 if i remember the date right when Zbigniew Brzezinski president carter's national security adviser was woken up, or they said, we've detected Russian missiles taking off and heading our way. And then a minute later, he gets another call confirming that. And he's just about to wake up the president, who would then be very, you know, very likely would have been steered to say, okay, launch ours. Um, We'd have been off to the races. When Brzezinski got another call saying, oops, sorry, we fed the wrong tape. We fed the tape of a simulated attack into the computer. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> the Russian missiles aren't on their way. I mean, we came that close to nuclear catastrophe. And, you know, that's not the only time and certainly won't be the only time. Hopefully, we'll come out of it unscathed.
0: How do they get their own heads around the danger of all this? Why do they seem so sure there won't be a nuclear war? Well, look what happens at the fringes. I mean, there's an example I often cite
1: uh, as part of President Obama's nuclear modernization program that he, I think, very but, uh, reprehensibly you know, signed off on back in, his, uh, back in 2010. Um, there was a part of what was slid in there was to increase our production of plutonium or produce more plutonium pits. A plutonium pit is the core of a nuclear weapon. Uh, And these pits were to be made or are made at the Los Alamos uh, nuclear laboratory in New Mexico. Now various as it so happened, there was no earthly need for these pits. I mean, even in the context of having building nuclear weapons, because we already had a surplus of pits. We had more than enough to keep us going for hundreds of years. We could fight. Not just World War Three, but World World Wars Four, Five, Six, and Seven, with what we
0: have in the, in the in the locker. Let me just interject: If there is a World War Three, there ain't going to be a Four, Five, Six, or Seven. But I get your point. Yeah. Uh, so um, so anyway, so
1: the uh, um, there were objections raised on this basis that so we didn't, didn't need to do it. Among those who fought like a tiger to keep that appropriation in there uh, was uh, Tom Udall, then the US Senator, one of the US senators for New Mexico. Now, Tom Udall was a very decent, liberal, progressive senator, one of the best we had. Very sad he resigned. Um, but because you know, Los Alamos was part of you know, the New Mexico economy, a major employer in the area um, he felt it you know behoved him to to dive in and fight for the right you know the money to to uh, to build more of these uh, useless or un- unneeded uh, com- nuclear weapons components so that's what happens you know on the on the fringe someone who you know, certainly doesn't believe in any of this. Um, it's very de- so imagine what it's like for uh, someone of, you know, determinedly uh, conservative attitudes, uh, who's, you know, much more of whose sort of uh, <coughs> prosperity and uh, power depends on the nuclear
0: weapons thing. I think they have no trouble at all. The Air Force is one of the centers of religious extremism. I guess you could say Christian nationalism. It's all in the branches of the military, apparently, but most powerfully in the Air Force. And the Air and the Air Force is Stratcom, and that's primary control over nuclear weapons. If I understand it right, it's a pretty dangerous cocktail there of people that are cynical enough just to want to make money out of all this, and a lot of people, including apparently very senior people at the senior levels, that actually might welcome the apocalypse.
1: Yeah, that's something else to worry about. I mean, I do remember years ago I was. Um, addressing a meeting, I was talking about this sort of thing, and um, there was an Air Force colonel in uniform in, in the audience. This was in Texas, uh, and he said he'd come a long way to hear me. And uh, he said, "But I should really." You know, we were chatting away, and he said, "You do know." He was complaining about science education in the U.S., which is, you know, a thing anyone could complain about. Um, and he said, "You do know that there are footprints, human footprints, contemporaneous with dinosaurs." He said, "It's all nonsense what uh, what they tell you about <coughs> you know evolution, all that." He said, "You know if you really creationism show you know we, if you study <coughs> creationist research, you you will find out that you know human beings and dinosaurs were more or less more or less contem- were indeed contemporary on the Earth's surface." So I thought, "Oh my God." Uh, I thought, um, you know, well, by the way, Colonel, well, what is your, um, what's your job in the Air Force? Hoping he'd say, you know, maintenance or something. And he said, oh, I, I'm, I, command, a, <laughs> I command a Titan Missile uh, Squadron. Now, the Titan Missile at that time, it's been phased out now, but it was a missile that uh, carried a nine megaton warhead. I think it's the biggest warhead we've ever had on a missile. And so this lunatic <laughs> was in charge of, under his direct con- command, he had enough to blow up you know, half the world. So um, I don't know how many people like that there are around, but I suspect a few.
0: The Dr. Strangelove scenario, says Daniel Ellsberg, is not outlandish that a rogue general could launch nuclear weapons. This idea that only the president with his little briefcase can actually launch is actually not true. The ability to launch has certainly been divested at various levels. In your book, you talk about it would take for just a few people in missile silos to figure this out.
1: Well, right. My um, unfortunately late uh, good friend Bruce Blair, who was a very he was a great American who really cared about this stuff and really worked for much of his life to uh, trying to change it and uh, uh, make help with the uh, make this threat go away. He Yeah, they told me this story, which I report in the book, um, how in the early 70s, he was a launch control officer in a Minuteman silo (laughs) deep under Montana. Um, And, you know, they actually would sit down there for days at a time when they were on on duty. And so pretty boring. Um, So he figured out what it would take, you know, he got to know the system very well, what it would take to bypass the entire chain of command and launch. And he worked out how he, if he, he had to suborn one other, well, he'd have to either disable or enlist his fellow control officer in the, in the silo with him. Uh, but having done that, um, all he would need was some, someone of like mind in another silo uh to cooperate and together they could launch the entire wing um, of I forget about well, 50 missiles or so. If they got a particular, if it was in the silo that the sort of con- command silo for the entire wing, then if they suborn that one, then they could launch the entire US nuclear arsenal. They could send a signal it was it was called red dot. Uh, emergency signal overrode everything else and just launched everything except the bombers i believe uh, so there was you know rough, well over a thousand missiles um so i said to i said to bruce so you um <coughs> you 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 figured out how to start a nuclear war and kill a few million people and he said a few million he said a few hundred million maybe a billion um so this was And so once Bruce Blair had figured out how easy the system was to uh, subvert and how easy it was for someone, you know, he'd been a captain in the Air Force at that point, how a a U.S. Air Force captain or a couple of captains or lieutenants um, could actually blow up the world. He, once he'd left the Air Force, he tried to... Bring. He went to the Congress and explained the situation, and the Congress went to the air you know the committee went to the Air Force and tried to you know said what's your explanation you know can you comment on this, and the Air Force did an investigation, which they classified at a level so that even the congressional congressional committee that had asked for the investigation couldn't see it. So and furthermore they kept the system in place, so. They claim now, and Bruce thought that maybe they'd improve things in the succeeding decades, but he wasn't sure, and I'm certainly not sure. I think the situation is still hellaciously dangerous. Um, Because, you know, for going back to the point we're discussing, because the object of the exercise is not to have an efficient military that does the task assigned to it as efficiently, and in this case, safe, as safely as possible, no. It's to you know, enhance the power of the Air Force, enhance, in this case, the Air Force budget, and, and the balanced bottom lines of the very many interested individuals and contractors who live off it.
0: Thanks for joining us, Andrew, and thank you for joining us on TheAnalysis.News. And please join us again for part two of Andrew Colburn, who will be coming soon. Don't forget to find his book, Spoils of War. And please, if you haven't donated yet to theanalysis.news, uh, we certainly can't do this without you. If you live in the United States, once again, we are a five hundred one c three, so your donation will be tax deductible. Thanks again for watching.